Hello, film fans, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, a filmmaker or writer or actor or musician, anyone who loves movies really, to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And our guest today is movie critic for Vulture.com and New York Magazine, uh, and his work has also appeared at The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, and many, many more. Say hello to Bilga Beery. Hi, Bilga. Hello. How are you guys doing? Thank you so much for doing this, man. I'm very excited. You were one of the first people we reached out to. I said, I know I want to get Bilga on here. Um, tell us about the year that you have selected and why that. why is that year important to you? Well, I selected 1987, and, and there were several options, if I remember correctly. Not st- options, but there were several years that I presented as, as possible ones. Right. Um, some w- were probably more notable in terms of film history or notable in terms of, like, you know, when certain favorites of mine uh, were made. But uh, 1987 was actually a really big year for me because it was kind of the year I became a serious film buff. Um. So I was 14 that year, I, I, and and I, I mean, just to set the stage, my family were were film nerds. I mean, my, my dad is a film nerd and longstanding since he was sure. like four years old or something. You know, he grew up watching like every movie that came out in Istanbul in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and so it wasn't. It wasn't like I, I didn't care about movies before then. Uh, you know, I, my parents would watch grown-up movies when I was a kid. They'd watch foreign films and things like that. But it was always something that was something my, my parents did that I was like kind of interested in. And, and you know, we went to we went to see just about everything that came out. But uh, 1987 was the year that you know I, I, I like I said I turned 14. I think that was the year when you know I became a person who could just like go to the movies on his own if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember uh, what happened was I went to um, I went to see Raising Arizona when it was in theaters in, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it was, it's Raising Arizona. It's delightful. I loved it, you know. <laughs> um, and then I came home and my dad had a copy of Film Comment. I think it was Film Comment. I should have looked this up. I, I, I've written about this in the past. He had, a, he had an issue of Film Comment lying around with Raising Arizona on the cover. Wow. And there was an article in in there. Um, and it was called Praising Arizona. And it was actually it was actually a really, really good piece of, of film writing. And I years ago, I, I looked up the writer. And I think I even like found the writer. And forgive me, I did not actually like look up beforehand who the writer was before I got on this podcast. I, I should have looked this up. But it was a piece called Praising Arizona. It was kind of a, just a, you know, it was a kind of longish up appreciation of raising Arizona and talking about the Coen's oeuvre as it were I mean it was <laughs> relatively early in their careers obviously yeah but at one point in the piece almost as like a throwaway line it it mentioned Bernardo Berlucci's The Conformist and okay. my, my dad happened to have a VHS of The Conformist lying around um, I, I remember I was in my base, I, I was in our basement and I was reading and there was like, like literally like the, the, the VHS of the conformist was like sitting there right in front of me. <laughs> like, my parents are off at work. I'm a total, I've been a sure. latchkey kid since I was seven years old. Of course. Um, yeah. I mean, which is also another way to just see a whole bunch of shit you probably shouldn't be watching. <laughs> so, uh, so I went 
uh, so like I was like, oh, hey, I have the conformist right here. I should check out what this guy means. So I put on the conformist and, you know, it's it completely baffles me um, as a movie, but it also completely enchants me. I mean, of it's course. gorgeous. The music is fantastic. It's just so style. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, ever since then, I, I have this thing I like to say, which is a movie you want to see more than or a movie you have to see more than once has to be a movie you want to see more than once. You know, you, you'll mm. often see films that are like excruciating and, and like impenetrable and not very pleasant. And people are, well, you know, you have to see it again. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to watch <laughs> that again, because why would I do that? Right. But then you'll see films like The Conformist, which are maybe not impenetrable, but are challenging narratively. There are certain things about it that you don't quite understand. But it's so gorgeous. It sounds yeah. so great. It's so captivating and, and hypnotic and, and draws you in. That you're like, well, I'm just going to watch that again. So I watched The Conformist, rewound it, watched it again. By Holy the end shit. of that week, I'd seen The Conformist like five or six times, I think. Wow. Uh, and, and I became obsessed with The Conformist. And I became obsessed with Bertolucci. Um, and this was at a time when you know his films weren't that widely available. I mean, Last Tango in Paris was around. Um and the conformist obviously, but the other films were not. Um, and, and I be, but through him, I became obsessed with Italian cinema. Uh, and through him, I also became obsessed with French cinema, particularly like Godard and Pasolini and Visconti. These were kind of his big um, influences. So I started watching everything I could from those filmmakers. And of course those weren't widely available either. So 87 became this year when I was just like, you know, just digging in as much as I could into film history. But it also happens to be the year that Bernardo Bertolucci released The Last Emperor later that year. Yeah, And this was actually kind of a big deal for him because he hadn't made a film in a few years. And obviously it was Triumph, whatever, won Oscars, all that. Um, but I became obsessed with The Last Emperor as a result. Um, and this felt like a year when I suddenly had like, a horse in the Oscar race, <laughs> you know, like, because this was like, you know, this was like, yeah. I mean, this seemed like such a big thing, like this, this giant of Italian cinema of like international cinema from the 1970s had made a comeback with like this big epic. And of course, what, what that also led to was other films of his coming out. Um, sure. And there was even like a little resurgence in Italian cinema around this time. So, so more films came out. Um, and then 1988, the next year, there was a big Godard retro at the um, National Gallery of Art. We don't need to get into that. But but sort of this became sort of this period when I just like, you know, serious cinephilia became like my thing. And I became obsessed with these types of films. And there were, you know, a lot of them coming out around that time. I mean, there was, you know, Hope and Glory from John Borman. You know, uh, Kubrick released a movie. You know, some, some of the stuff we'll talk about. But it was actually a, a big year for that sort of thing. Um for a kind of um, a, a kind of prestige picture, if you will, that we sure. don't have anymore. That, that that like you could actually spend money on as a studio or a production company, um, and there was an audience for it, and it could win awards, or even if it didn't win awards, people would go see it. Um, and you know, 1987 in that sense was kind of a, a, a classic year. It only kind of in later years became obvious to me oh 1987 was actually uh, actually a great year because you know during the year the critics are always fucking complaining about how terrible all the movies are um right. you know pauline kale's classic piece about how, how what a shitty year 1974 was for movies right. yeah you know, um like it's it's always like that 
So later right. you, you look back and you're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, so yeah, right. I, I think I've, I've like monologued for a full 10 minutes. No, there. no, no, that's great. And I know, <laughs> but I also, I love like, and there is something so specific about becoming that sort of obsessed with movies when you're still at an age where you have that much free time to where you can just watch the same damn movie five yeah. times in a week because you're nuts about it and you have nothing else to do. You ain't got a job. You don't have anywhere to be, you know, (laughs) and you only have like 10 movies at home sometimes. So you just watch those over and over again. Yeah. All right. I want to, I want to hear this top five from 87, but before we do, uh, Mike is going to help us contextualize what was going on in the world off screen that year. Here's headlines. Uh, All I really have to say is the conformist is the most beautiful movie ever made. And (laughs) we should just make a podcast about that instead. Uh, All right. Headlines. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) 1987 was really defined by the end of the Reagan era. Right. Uh, I mean, we were very close to the end of the Reagan era and there were a lot of um, what's how do you call it? Chickens coming home to roost, I think is the is the, uh, is the phrase. Um, the big thing that year was the Tower Commission uh, had been looking into Iran-Contra. Um, I could talk a lot about sort of what Iran-Contra was, you know, but it's really just sort of mostly about this idea that, you know, um, the Republicans are saving the world and who are we to question their uh, their, 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 their means, right? As yep. long as we're, we're reaching the right ends. So the Tower Commission basically said that Reagan wasn't personally responsible for Iran-Contra, but they kind of said it with this voice, you know? Like, maybe? <laughs> uh, but either way, he was the boss, and he should have known what was going on, and he should have kept a, a much shorter leash on Oliver North. Um, yep. On March 4th, Reagan admitted to... Uh, on March 4th, Reagan admitted to, you know, the whole mess in public, sort of stopped denying it, and did like a we tried our hearts for pure thing. Nobody really believed him, but he was on his way out and clearly sort of crazy anyway. So we were just sort of letting it go. Bye. Bye. Uh, another uh, big, big deuces goes to Rudolf Hess, who killed himself that year. So uh, good riddance to that literal Nazi. Um, on October 19th was uh, was Black Monday on Wall Street, which was, as you may recall, a very big fucking deal when it happened. It's since really been overshadowed a lot by the dot com, uh, you know, the dot com bubble and the housing situation that happened later. But when that, you know, it was a really it was a big deal when it happened. And it was a lot of sort of we don't know what's going to happen in the world, you know, and the the strong hand of this guy's on his way out the door. And it was it's all gross. Those people are gross. Uh, the Max Headroom signal interruption happened in Chicago. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know if people know the story of the original Max Headroom before it became a, a Pepsi commercial. Um, but it's an amazing story and there's like 40 different podcasts. So pick your favorite podcast and, and listen to the origin of Max Headroom. It's a cool story. Um, Never Gonna Give You Up was recorded and released by Rick Astley. Literally no one knew where that was going to end up, but it started in 1987. Uh, yeah. And The Simpsons premiered on uh, The Tracy Ullman Show. Another thing that has had an almost inexplicable run. Um, good, but I mean, really... 30 years? for How long has it been? Oh my God, I'm so fucking old. The Edmonton Oilers won the Stanley Cup. The New York Giants beat the Denver Broncos for the Super Bowl. Minnesota Twins won the World Series. Uh, Mike Tyson and Sugar Ray Leonard were both big deals in 1987. In my 10-year-old life, those gentlemen were very important. Uh, (laughs) Ali Sheba won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, but not the Belmont. Yvonne Lindell won the U.S. Open, and there was no World Cup in 1987. So all in all, it could have been a better year. That's it for headlines.
Thank you, Mike. And uh, now let's hear a top five. Vilga, um, let's go ahead and start. Uh, let's start where we sort of left off there with uh, the the big movie that came out at the end of that year that finally gave you a rooting interest in the Oscars. What is your uh, what is your your first of your top five for 1987? Uh, the first is uh, Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor. I have decided that you will be the new lord of 10,000 years. In a place rich with tradition. A man bound by honor faced a nation's greatest turmoil. Winner of nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year, The Last Emperor. If you asked me back then what my favorite movie was, I probably would have said The Conformist. But then I probably would have said, and then The Last Emperor. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was a pretty big diehard. And what was funny was it wasn't even, like the Oscars obviously was a, a big deal and, you know, Last Emperor like swept the Oscars. But what was interesting to me was it, that was the year I became really interested in like critics awards and critics ratings and things like that because i mean this you know it's not like i'm making it sound like this was like some big intellectual thing it wasn't i was 14 years old i was i was a stan but somehow sure. i had i had picked this ridiculous movie to be a stand for um but i remember you know premiere magazine the american premiere magazine um you know they would publish at the either at the end of the year at the or the beginning of the year they would publish kind of this like this like their centerfold, uh, which was basically um, like a scorecard. I remember the scorecard of all kind yeah. of like major critics and and the right. stars they gave each movie. Um, right. And I remember, I, I remember, I would be obsessed with these things. Um, <laughs> that like annual chart that uh, that that Premier Magazine did. I remember, like I took down the I took down the names of all the critics who did not give the Last Emperor four stars. If you gave it three stars, you were dead to me. Um, so I was just like, you know, and it's like I mean, some of those names, you know, like, like Owen Gleiberman, who's this guy? You know, I think I, I think he gave it a two stars or something. And by oh the way, God. two stars was still good because there was actually sure. it was one of those ratings where it's like. You know, it was like four stars, three stars, two stars, one star. But then it was like a clear star and then clear two stars. Like that was like you could you could actually give like a negative score, a negative star score almost. Um, so so I was, you know, I, was, I just became so kind of weirdly obsessed with these star ratings. Um, and, you know, it was I mean, it was fun. It was fun. You know, like it, it, the days before the Internet, you could just <laughs> enjoy you know, shit talking random film critics to your wall. Like you didn't have to go on Twitter and call the guy an asshole. So his family <laughs> could see it, you know, like it was delightful having a little bit of just like anger yeah. about this stuff without feeling like I had to like publicly express it and then like stand by right. it and then defend my rage or whatever. Um, I, I, I miss that feel. I miss that feeling of like, just, just, just private beef, you know? Right. Right. How many times did you see Last Emperor in that initial theatrical run? I saw it uh, 10 times in the initial theatrical run. Um, it was, well, first of all, it was back in the days when a movie would be in theaters for a long time. But months. Yeah. And I can tell you what theaters I saw it in because it opened in 70 millimeter in uh, the D.C. area. 
uh, it opened in 70 millimeter and it first showed at these, uh, at this, uh, movie theater, uh, whose name I'm actually gonna, it was called the Jennifer. It was the KB Jennifer. Um, and it was a two screen theater. They, the screens weren't actually that big, but it, it showed there. It showed there for a week in 70 millimeter. Uh, in, in DC, we have the Uptown theater, um, it closed recently, but I guess Landmark or somebody's bought it, so it's going to come back. But it was, it's this immense, enormous, almost IMAX sized screen. It's where 2001 had its world premiere back in the day. It's an gotcha. incredible screen. Um, and I remember that theater, which is kind, which was kind of like the the you know the crown jewel of the DC movie going scene. That theater showed Cry Freedom, Richard Attenborough's Cry Freedom, uh, the Stephen Biko biopic with mm-hmm. uh, Denzel Washington and Kevin Klein, which was not well received. It was kind of his, I mean, he had done Gandhi. I think he'd done Chorus Line. but So that was supposed to be like a big Oscar movie. And then it wasn't. It just flopped. But we went to see Cry Freedom at the Uptown. And then a week later, uh, or maybe two weeks or something like that, Cry Freedom was gone from the Uptown and Last Emperor came into the Uptown. Um, and I had seen Last Emperor previously on another screen, but then once it came to the Uptown, I was like, oh, I have to go see it at the Uptown. And I went and the Uptown. And the Uptown was right near a metro station, so it was very easy to get to. And so it became like my ritual would be like after school for weeks, I would like head over to the Uptown Theater. There was a great like really just like divey rib shop like right nearby so it was in the evening i'd go get some ribs <laughs> i'd go to watch last emperor at the uptown i mean this was my ritual for months and you know it wasn't a huge hit but it was in limited release and it was doing well with like awards so they actually even though the studio was kind of um you know there was there had been a sort of a leadership change at the studio at, at Columbia Pictures at this time. Right. It, was, it was a project right. that David Putnam had kind of acquired, I believe. Yeah. And then he was gone. So the current Columbia regime didn't want the movie and they didn't really open it wide. In fact, I don't think they opened it wide until after the Oscars, but it was in limited release for a long time. And it stayed at the Uptown for forever. Um, so I could just go see it and just see it. And I, I saw it nine times at the Uptown. And then uh, and then after it left the Uptown and went to some other theater, I went and saw it one more time because I was like, oh, it's going to be gone soon. <laughs> I have to see it again. I'll never see it again. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what if it doesn't come out on video? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But back then, you know, it was like it was going to come out on VHS. It was never, I mean, it's never, it's still never going to be the same. But even back back then, it was like, who knows if it'll ever screen in theatrically again. Um so yeah, that that initial uh, that that was the initial run. And since then, you know, occasionally it, it shows somewhere, and I and I try to see it. Um, but yeah, why? What captured you so much about that film? You know, it's. I mean, it's obviously it's it's gorgeous. Um, I, I I was fascinated by the idea of, and I think this this is something I've noticed in some other films I really like a lot. But I was fascinated by the idea of a passive protagonist which is kind of an idea that is a kind of a narrative no-no. You later realize mm-hmm. that's a narrative no-no. But a lot of my favorite films, including, I would say, The Conformist, have you know a character's passivity as kind of their thing. Not passive, like he just doesn't do anything and it's boring watching him, but like this character who's unable to, to sort of do what he wants or, or kind of claim what is his or whatever. Um, the, the, the idea of a character who doesn't have goals, but on whom like the world just kind of happens. And I was fascinated by that idea. Um, and I'm still fascinated by that idea because in so many ways, you know, that explains the condition of 
I wouldn't have expressed it in that way back in back in 1987 as a 14-year-old. But in years later, I was like, that's actually much more in tune with how life works than, yes. than say, <laughs> Die Hard, you know? Right, um, right. Or any kind of standard written script of this guy wants this and he's going to get it and he's going to be faced with obstacles and, right. you know, he's going to succeed at the end, which is not the way life works at all. <laughs> right. Um, right. So I think, I think that was kind of what captivated me. But the fact that it was that kind of story while also being just so gorgeous, so cinematic, so captivating. I mean, you know, I was a child and I could just be completely transported by this film. Um, you know, and it's actually years later, I realized I discovered that Last Emperor was actually a big film for the Chinese film industry as well. Um, a number of people from sort of that new wave of Chinese cinema actually worked on the film. Chen Kai Ga was mm. a director's assistant. Um, and in fact, he has a small part in the movie. I mean, so it was actually, you know, like a lot of the early... Uh, you know, new wave Chinese films from that period are also kind of very visually lush and things like that. A lot of people have said that's actually some of that is the legacy of The Last Emperor and the fact that like, you know, Bertolucci came and yeah, you know, I mean, I, you, you don't want to make it like sound like a white savior narrative. That's silly, but right. um, but but that was actually a big deal because this huge international co-production came and hired a ton of people. Um, and that's a big deal for a filmmaker that's starting out to actually get a job on a big, big production like that, you know? Um, yeah. So that was, you know, I think that was, that was, I, I think a lot of that stuff had almost a subliminal impact on me without me necessarily being able to articulate it that way at the time. Beautiful. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's move backwards then on the top five. Let's, let's move back to the film that, uh, that somehow took you to Bertolucci. Uh, what is, your next film on your top five, Belga. I, I have to, you know, I have to say Raising Arizona, um, which is still my favorite Cohen's film. My name is H.I. McDonough. Call me high. The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. Don't forget his profile, Ed. Turn to the right. A day I'll never forget. Turn to the right. What kind of name is Ed for a pretty thing like you? Short boy, Edwina. Turn to the right. You're a flower, you are. Just a little desert flower. Let me know how those come out. Uh, and the Coens and the Coens are 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 filmmakers that I have a weird. I mean, I'm I have like a love, 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 hate relationship with them. Like they have several movies that people love that I actually don't like that much. Um, but raising Arizona is the one I'm just like, I can watch this anytime, anywhere. I will show it to anybody. I showed it to my son a couple of years ago. I'm just like, if, if you don't appreciate raising Arizona, I feel like there's something wrong with you. You know, like, like <laughs> do we live on the same planet? You know, um, <laughs> It's just it's a, it's a ter tremendous movie and also just incredibly moving. Probably the most moving film the Coens have made uh, for me, at least maybe until True Grit, which is also just just a you know cry your brains out kind of movie. But Raising Arizona also has the benefit of being also their funniest movie, which is kind of incredible as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yeah, I mean you know Raising I mean everybody loves Raising Arizona. Everybody's talked about Raising Arizona. I don't know that there's a ton to say about it, but it's it's just a tremendous film. I think that was the first time I'd seen Nicolas Cage in other movies. I realized because I'd seen Peggy Sue Got Married by that point and a couple other films that he was in. But this was the first time I was like, oh wait, who's that guy? That guy's really right. good. 
Um, and of course, Moonstruck is that year as well, I think. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was kind of a big year for him. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just such a great film. Every every time I watch it, I'm, I'm just, and I've seen it many, many times over the years. Every time I watch it, I'm just delighted and surprised by just how perfect the timing is, how, how well written the thing is, just how well directed. It's just, it's just perfect in so many ways. Okay, then. Um, <laughs> all right, Bilga, what is the next movie? Uh, the number three title on your top five of 1987. Um, I'm trying to figure out which way to go with this next one. Because, <laughs> because they, 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 I mean, there are a lot of films that could, um, that could kind of go, you know, the, the, the film I'm going to talk about is uh, Gillian Armstrong's High Tide. Together for the first time since my brilliant career, Judy Davis stars in a film directed by Gillian Armstrong. High Tide. A passionate and compelling story of love and loyalty. You know who she is. Well, I don't want her knowing. She could be anyone. It's only after I found out I started to notice things. Small likenesses. Um, which I adore. I don't remember if I actually saw it in 1987. I saw it when it opened in DC, um, which I should have looked this up. Uh, but I, it might, which I, that, but might have been 1988. But it was kind of in the wake of my burgeoning cinephilia, um, and it was a film I went and saw by myself. Um, and and uh, and I remember the theater I saw it in too. It was the Maza Gallery Theater. Um, but um, the thing that high tide for me uh that i always think about with high tide was you know it wasn't a widely beloved film critically when it came out i mean i think some people you know really gravitated toward it and it, it, it was a it had been a big hit in australia but it got a very small release in the u.s um and i years later i talked to jillian armstrong about this but apparently hemdale corporation which i believe also um helped finance uh the last emperor but for hemdale this was actually um you know, it was a, it was like a tax shelter kind of situation, oh, and geez. and they apparently uh, made all their money, you know, before having to release it, uh, and and they had zero interest apparently in doing an international release, so they kind of gave it a very cursory re- release. Mm. And because of some of that, some of those shenanigans, the movie is um, it's not lost; it's out there. You can see it. In fact, it's it screened in thirty five millimeter at the Nighthawk a couple of months ago. Um, and there is, I mean, I have, I have like multiple DVDs of it and, and, and like I have the laser disc and stuff, but I believe it's negative is lost. Um, oh, wow. Like, or, or they just don't know where it went because this company and its library were acquired by so many different companies over the years. I remember her saying something along the lines of that she just doesn't know where the negative is. So like, I don't know that it's possible to do like, like a proper restoration. Um Yikes. And uh, and it's I, I do think it's a film that's gotten more uh, recognition over the years. Um, I remember going to a a, a very prominent um, home video company, uh, which we shall not name, and and mentioning I was like, hey, you guys should release Gillian Armstrong's High Tide, and they were like, we have no idea what that is, you know. Um, wow. So this was years <laughs> years ago, years ago. No, but no, uh-huh. but but the thing about High Tide is. Um, that I was going to get back to is so I remember I read a review of it in I believe the Washington Post that was kind of like a mixed I want to say it was like a mixed negative review or maybe it was just a mixed review but the thing that that was interesting about it was I read the review 
And I thought to myself in reading the review, I said, this sounds like a movie I would like. Yeah. Um, and I, and to this day, I, I kind of think of that as being like one of the, the most noble goals of, of film criticism, which is like, absolutely. No matter, no matter what your opinion of the film is that you have to give some sense of the film so that someone can read your review and decide whether that's something, whether that's something they want to see themselves, because you know how it is. I'm so many film critics see themselves. I am a filter. I am a filter. I am a consumer advocate. I have to keep people away from the bad movies. And it's like, no, that's not actually how I think criticism should work because your bad movie is not my bad movie. And and your good movie is not my good movie. You have to give me a sense of what this movie is like so that you might be praising it to the skies. And I could read that review and be like, you won't catch me dead at this fucking thing. Or you might trash it. And I'd be like, wait, that sounds awesome. (laughs) I'm going to go see that. Like, I think that, I think criticism should do that, you know? Um, And uh, so, so, so I read this review and I was like, huh, sounds interesting. It's playing, you know, near the Metro. So I'll go, I went and saw it. This was your criteria. This was the sole filter was like, if it wasn't close to the Metro when you're 14, you're probably not going to see it. Yeah. And so funny is because, you know, I, I, I still don't drive to this day. And I think part of it might be that like, I became like an active user of the, uh, of DC's public transportation system at a very young age. And I was like, why would I ever want to like drive? (laughs) Like I can just go wherever the hell I want. Um, but, um, so yeah, no. So I went to see. I went to see. High and the thing I remember is that at the time I wasn't like I, I was fascinated by the film and I thought it was gorgeous um, and I thought it was really interesting. And Judy Davis was just like captivating, amazing, yeah, gorgeous. I mean, I thought she was gorgeous. Um, and it's so funny because there's like a 14 year old girl in the movie. You'd think the 14 year old boy would be like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, who's she?" I'm like, "No, no, no, <laughs> the, the middle aged alcoholic in like the the ratty black outfit." Like that's, that's ah, she, she, she cranks my tractor, you know, like, um, she's got that certain something. Yeah. 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 So we, we, we know how doomed I was right from the get. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, no. So, so, so I was kind of like, oh, you know, interesting. I'm glad I saw it. Um, I'm glad I saw it on a big screen. And then, you know, it, it was played in theaters for like a week or two weeks or sure. something. Um, and then later, uh, I actually got, got it on VHS uh, and watched it again with my dad and, you know, still had kind of mixed feelings about it. And then it was funny because several years later, at that point, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like the only person that saw this movie at this point. Right. <laughs> the theater was empty. I didn't remember anybody talking about it. And then I, my freshman year of college, um, my professor showed it in an intro to film class. Um, and, and it's funny because wow. I mean, I'm so glad he did this, but, you know, the, he thought he was being like, well, I'm going to show you kids a movie you've never seen. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, excuse me, <laughs> I, saw in, I saw it in the original release. Um, and uh, and he was like, oh, wait, you know, somebody saw this in the theater. I was like, yeah. Um, yeah. So so I, I it's one of those films that it's very special to me because I've come to appreciate it over the years. Um, and to the point where. I recently, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention this, but I put it on my sight and sound ballot. Um, hey. I, I watch it every year. I mean, I watch it. I, if it ever comes around theatrically, I'm, I'm there. And I watch it. I'm, I'm just drawn to it constantly. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think Judy Davis's performance is maybe the, the, the best uh, performance I've ever seen. Best actress performance I've ever seen. Um, and uh, and I just I just think it's, 
it's and it's such an elegantly conceived film. I mean, every time I watch it, I I notice something new that she's doing structurally, um, that she's doing visually with that film. I mean, it's an incredibly sophisticated filmmaking happening in that in that movie. Um, yeah. So so yeah. Production design on that movie. Yeah. Like yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. I, the colors of the ice cream truck and like sort of with the ocean in the background, like sort of through the windows and like just I never I hadn't. This was my first watch. So thank you for that. But it's one of those like you're watching the credits and I was like, all right, this movie has a really good shot at being good. You know, just sort of the the, <laughs> the sort of crew on it, you know, the, yeah. the sort of head of the line crews on it were just incredible. And then sure enough, just the production design, the photography, like. And also the performances and, and the other things, but really just like a really coherent, beautiful movie. And I just have to say, I think if you can remember where you saw a movie 35 years ago, you sort of have to be a critic, right? Isn't that sort <laughs> of like, there's no other way for you to get it out other than to be a yeah. That yeah. diagram has to be a circle. <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell you, Boga, selfishly, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but one of the, you know, one of the selfish reasons to do this show is just to get recommendations from from people we like you know and to to have an excuse to watch things that we should have seen by now and like this was my excuse to finally see the last emperor i had never heard of of high tide either before we got your list so mike and i were talking before you came in actually just that you know people should seek this movie out i'm not going to spoil it but there is a moment near the end where you think something really horrific could happen yeah. And the the emotional investment, this is what we were talking about, that we both felt at that moment was just sort of blind spot, uh, blindsiding. And the fact that the movie was so, um, so rich that it could have gone either way at that point. Yeah. It's just really, really remarkable. I, I think uh, on when when we did like our list of the greatest endings of all time on Vulture, oh, yeah. I believe yeah. I included that on there. That was one of mine um, because that ending is phenomenal and yeah. the score i love the score too that like poppy mm-hmm. saxophony kind of score i remember my dad even though he was mixed on the movie he loved that score and it wasn't you couldn't find a cd of it or anything sure. and he recorded the audio of it um onto tape and he'd like play it in the car uh complete with like the sound effects from the movie and everything <laughs> um so like i, I remember that. the score to high tide playing in like the car as like my dad was wow. driving me to school or whatever um that's uh, great but but yeah and there's um you know like the thing that i always think about is the way the film starts um and it looks like you're passing you know it looks like so many films start with like you know like a tr- helicopter shot over the way like a look the song right. kind of you know it's like just like highway or or sea or something like that passing through the through the frame and it's like the sense of constant motion and it's like very dramatic and it's close up kind of abstract and then it kind of comes into focus and it's just like beaded curtains it's the elvis impersonation show that they're doing on screen so it's not um there's no movement it's total stasis and it's actually yeah. symbolic of her stasis as a character and also of her dreams of like going on the road and and being on the road and kind of just like going out and finding yourself and kind of living the life of a you know the the, the free life of a rolling stone kind of thing that she's doing and yet so much of the movie is about how she's stuck right how yeah. she's stuck in that in that in that situation and then literally stuck because you know her her band abandons her and then her car breaks breaks down um, but, uh, 
but then by the end of the film it does it goes back to the highway and it is a finally a highway and it, and it kind of it's, it's almost it's like you've come full circle but you've come full circle from you know the thwarted dreams she had to finally she is moving forward in in, yeah. in in through life i mean when you describe it it sounds almost cliche but the way it's done cinematically is so captivating and so gorgeous um like as much as i love james cameron like you know the thing that he's trying to do at the end of terminator 2 she's doing here you know <laughs> <laughs> i love that all right bilgo what is your number four movie for 1987 Number four movie, and we don't have to spend a ton of time talking about it because it is, uh, it is, uh, you know, a much discussed film. It's Full Metal Jacket. Well, no shit. What have we got here? A fucking comedian, Private Joker. I admire your honesty. Hell, I like you. You can come over to my house and fuck my sister. <clears throat> you little scumbag! I got your name. I got your ass. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and shut down your neck. Um, and by that point, I think I had seen a couple of Stanley Kubrick movies. I'd seen, I'd seen 2001 because I remember as a kid in Turkey, my parents took me to see 2001 and told me it was Star Wars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was like, I think I had, because, you know, in ter- back then, movies didn't open at the same time all around the world. It right. took years for a movie to come to. So cause I had heard about Star Wars in Turkey, and I believe I even maybe had, like, the Star Wars action figures. But, like, they didn't match, like, <laughs> anything in 2001. Um, there were a couple of movies they took me to telling me it was Star Wars. Um, so so I'd seen 2001. I didn't think of it as Kubrick. But we had lots of Stanley Kubrick books around the house, so I knew who he was. Um at this point, oh, I'd seen The Shining. Actually, I'd seen The Shining mm. because it was one of those films that played on TV at like 3.30 p.m. after I got right. home from school uh, and my parents were off at work. So I got to see a two and a half hour movie about a, a father who wants to kill his child. Um, <laughs> and it was very scary. Like I was not a big like, you know, horror movies didn't make huge impressions on me back then. But The Shining did uh, at that age, like nine or whatever I was. Absolutely. Um, but um there we go. Uh, so anyway, Full Metal Jacket was kind of the first Stanley Kubrick movie I saw in uh, theatrical release. And the next to last Stanley Kubrick movie I saw in theatrical release. Um, but uh, but I remember it was it was a film that I was really, you know, like Vietnam movies were all the rage back then. I mean, not yeah. all the rage, but like Platoon had come out. And in fact, the thing I'd always heard was that Oliver Stone had gotten Platoon greenlit because everybody knew Stanley Kubrick was working on a Vietnam oh, wow. movie, but like Kubrick was taking his t- t- time and there had actually been some delays on Full Metal Jacket. So Stone was able to just like sneak Platoon in there. And then of course, by the time Full Metal Jacket comes out, it's like there have been a bunch of Vietnam movies right. already. Um, but, uh, but I remember the thing I remember about Full Metal Jacket, I went to see it with my, that was one I actually went and saw with my family. And, um, my my mom this is interestingly 1987 is is end of 1987 is like when my parents split up uh but Mm. full metal jacket comes out in summer so i remember we went and saw it as a family but the thing that i remember walking out of full metal jacket my mom talking to my dad and she was mortified at the thought that because i was a turkish citizen back then and you know i was 14 but this was a few years off a few years off but she's like oh my god 
Bilba's going to have to go into the military. Like he's going to have to do military service in Turkey. And she was mortified. I, th- I think she yeah. was like crying about it. Um, oh my God. And, but that's the thing I always think about when people are like, you know, all war movies are, are pro war movies or, you know, right. like, and I know there are a lot of people who quote full metal jacket and they're like really excited by Arlie Ermey and they're like, Oh yeah, I want to join the military. So some complete total fucking psychotic can scream at me for months. <laughs> um, that's that's on them. Like that's their problem because Full Metal Jacket is an absolutely terrifying fucking movie. Like I yeah. can't imagine the mindset of somebody who can watch that and like that, that's so fucking cool, man. Let's go Sign do that. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. like like that's like the people who see Full Metal Jacket and it's like that's their Top Gun. I'm like, there's something wrong with you. Um, uh, so so yeah, but no, I, I to this day I think Full Metal Jacket is is phenomenal. Obviously, the first half is the more notable part. I think the second half works perfectly um you know it's full yeah. metal jacket i mean back yeah. then it was kind of seen as almost a mid movie like oh you know it's the new kubrick but it's not great it's okay it's fine whatever right. it's like a three-star movie and of course like with all kubrick movies over the years it's just gained an acclaim and if you released it today it would probably beat the last emperor for best picture you know <laughs> um yeah. so yeah, yeah. All right. And then last but not least, Boga, what is your number five movie of 1987? My number five movie is Alex Cox's Walker. The unthinkable has happened. The United States has invaded Nicaragua. An American has declared himself president. Be prepared to sacrifice yourself for freedom and justice. Walker. It is the God-given right of the American people to dominate the Western Hemisphere. It is the fate of America to go ahead. Um, which is another movie that came out that came and went <laughs> like very quickly, very quickly, and nobody, uh, especially not the studio, uh, wanted you to see it. Um, yeah, and. I remember with Walker, um, I was initially just absolutely fascinated by the poster. Um, mm. And um, I don't remember if this was Premiere magazine, but one of those one of those magazines, I think it was Premiere, did like they they would they did this like this little thing where uh, they present like little movie postcards um and each each was the poster and each mm-hmm. issue had these and you'd cut cut them out they were like postcard size um sure and i remember the poster for walker was was really kind of fascinating it was gorgeous it was kind of this like red you know this animated you know hand-drawn figure of you know ed harris walking away from a flaming background um but uh it's interesting because um you know you were talking uh mike about the um iran contra thing i mean Here's a movie that was actually very on top of the politics of its day. I mean, it's it's a film about you know U.S. adventurism in in uh, in in Nicaragua. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, this was this yeah. was this was in the news at the time, and this is one of the very few films to actually tackle it, but also to tackle it in a way that did not um, that was not reassuring to right. any side politically. Right. Well, and it didn't, what it, what the movie doesn't do is put it on Reagan. You know, I mean, that was a big sort of part of this conversation at the time was like, Oliver North is just sort of this like Rasputin character 
who managed to sort of get into the halls of power and like sprinkle magic dust on everybody. And they didn't know what he was doing, you know? Right. And this movie is very clear about like, this is not about a party. This is not about a politician. This is about like America and our sense of ourself and manifest yeah. destiny. And, you know, all of these sort of like, and sort of the, you know, when you get to the point where Walker is talking about reinstating slavery and he's sitting at the table with like his homie, who's been everywhere with, you know, right. and sort of the compromises that we're willing to make in order to sort of just keep Cornelius Vanderbilt happy, right? Because ultimately, <laughs> right, like, what are we doing? Yeah. We're just keeping this one fucking lunatic, you know, who can afford to just hire an army, right? Like, and it's and and the movie is very clear about about this is you know this is not about Oliver North. This is not about Cornelius Vanderbilt. This is about who we think of ourselves and sort of what we think our place is in the world, which is to tell everybody what to do. Wild ass movie. I had not seen Walker. This was another new one for me. I, I'm glad you brought this one in. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was so hated back then. I mean, Siskel and Ebert hated it. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody liked it. Um, years later, I, I remember I, I wrote a thing for, for nerve.com when I was doing a series called um, forgotten films and I wrote about it and, and I, and I actually interviewed Alex Cox for it. And he was just like, you know, you're, you're like one of the very few people who's, who's ever asked me about this movie because it's just, it, I mean, it's killed his, yeah. to the extent that he had a Hollywood career, it killed that. Right. Um, but, um, but then like two years later, Criterion put it out and now it's like, it just showed at the Alamo draft house, uh, not long ago. I mean, or mm-hmm. was that, I think it was Alamo. Um, yeah, it was. and, yeah. uh, you know, so it's like a film that actually, like people have have come to appreciate over the years. I mean, I love the fact that it's, you know, it's not just a movie about this. It's a movie about movies and about how movies kind of sort of reinforce these ideas. And it's done at the, like it's done with love, but it's not done with the kind of love that softens the blow. Like it's made by a guy who loves Westerns. He loves Peckinpah Westerns. He loves violence in movies. I mean, he understands where all this stuff is coming. He's not American, but he understands where all this stuff is coming from. But he skewers it. Like he skewers it. And it's not kind of a, oh, it's like a gentle rebuke of sort of (laughs) the the American Western adventurer ideal. It's like a huge fuck you to that. Um, But it's like, but it's made by a guy who understands the appeal of that thing. So it has like great, like just it's incredibly violent (laughs) battle scenes and stuff like that. But it's so fucking twisted that he's like, he's clearly like interrogating himself as he does it. Um, And, you know, Ed Harris is like, I mean, it's Ed Harris. He was in the right stuff for God's sake. Like he's he's Ed Harris in Ed Harris mode. I want to know what he said to Ed Harris. Like one of the things I want to do is just like, talk to ed harris for five hours about walker like what was going through your mind because he does it so well like he 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 does that like glazed hypnotized man of action sort of spiritual Mm. conqueror thing so well and with such incredible conviction that i'm like did they just not tell Ed Harris what was happening? Like what they were doing with this movie? Um, Because he's so good at it. Um, There's, there is, I mean, he, it's obviously incredibly exaggerated, but there isn't any kind of like Mel Brooksian sort of like glint in his eye. He is totally committed to this part to the point where like, like you're convinced that like when the cameras, like when they 
call cut, he's just going to like go and actually invade Nicaragua, you know? Um, And, uh, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's an amazing movie in that regard. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for that, that top five. Uh, and now we're going to move on to see, uh, some of the movies that were winning awards and that were winning, uh, the weekly box office. Uh, Mike, will you run us down the awards and, uh, and moneymakers for 1987? Sell out with me. Oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. Absolutely. We start at the top of the Oscar list with the last emperor, best picture, Bertolucci won best director, uh, also won best adapted screenplay, deserved all of those and more. Uh, Michael Douglas won best actor for Wall Street. Where do you land on that one, Bilga? I like Wall Street. Back then, I was not a big fan of Wall Street. Um, I was not a big fan of Michael Douglas back then, although I, Mm. you know, did watch every movie he was in. So maybe I was a bigger (laughs) fan than I thought. But um, I have since come around on Michael. I'm a big Michael Douglas fan now. But back then he was like exactly the, you know, the the epitome of kind of like the grown up kind of actor that I was not interested in. Um, (laughs) But I like I like Wall Street. Uh, It's funny because back then, you know, Wall Street, obviously um, Stone had done. platoon and had won all these awards for it and i liked salvador i remember i'd seen salvador at that point the other thing i should mention with the walker thing and it, actually the bertolucci thing you know i was like such a fucking little snot-nosed radical back then uh, you know i was like <laughs> re- you know reading all these books on like latin american resistance movements and stuff like that i mean i was the cinephilia that came from my parents you know the campus radicalism also came right. um so uh, I, I I became a, I, I became a gross centrist later, um, but uh, but so but so I was really into that kind of stuff, and and to me Oliver Stone was in many ways almost a, a, a bastardization of that stuff, um, and so Wall Street to me didn't really resonate. And then years later I watched Wall Street and I was like, well, this is just a delightfully entertaining movie. I mean, this is just a pure popcorn entertainment. It's great, you know. Um, so I like Wall Street now. Uh, and, you know, 87 was a big year for Michael Douglas, obviously, because, you know, Fatal Attraction and all that. Right, right, right. All right, what else won Oscars, Mike? Uh, aforementioned Moonstruck won Best Actress for Cher, Best Supporting Actress for Olympia Dukakis, and Original Screenplay for John Patrick Shanley. I feel like that's one of those movies, if you ask people, like, what they remember about Moonstruck, unless they literally actually remember it, you can get a wide variety of like people will put any kind of movie under that title and be like, Oh, that's the one with uh, some singer in it. Right. (laughs) We remember Moonstruck. No, I love Moonstruck. I really, truly do. I I like, I like Moonstruck a lot. I, 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 at the time I was not that big a fan of it because also I was not a big fan of romantic comedies back then. Um, Mm. And over the years I've come to appreciate Moonstruck. I really, I've been meaning to watch it again because it's been a few years since I revisited it. The thing I really remember though, um, because we're talking about politics because 87 was a highly politicized year. And I remember, and obviously 88 was when the Oscars were given. Uh, But when Olympia Dukakis won her Oscar, she says, all right, Michael, let's go. Because Michael Michael Dukakis, her cousin, was running for president. Um, Yeah, he didn't do as well in his contest as she did. But back then, back then, it looked like he was going to. It looked like 88 was going to be the Democrats year and his year. So it felt like when she said that, it felt like this is just 
this this is just the icing on like this is this is this is preordained. Somebody got on stage at the Oscars and said this was happening. There's no way uh, this is not happening now, right? Um, Hollywood is for it. No, like that's that that was the mind of like yeah. a 14 year old me back then. <laughs> By the way, 88 Oscars, I believe, which is the year for these awards, this year's awards, is I believe it's the Snow White year, right? It's the Rock oh, Snow White yay! Year. The, the year without a host. They didn't have a host. Yeah. Uh, the thing I remember is Chevy Chase, because it, it wasn't like they didn't have a host. They didn't, they said they didn't have a host, but it, what, it, what they had was like five hosts, right? right. So they like, they had Chevy Chase and they had, I think, Robin Williams and a couple other people. But like, I remember Chevy Chase went up, he was on fairly, fairly uh, early in the show and he said, let's just get this thing over with. And he just like takes these po- postcards and he goes, uh, Bertolucci, share, you know, he just starts, starts throwing them out. Um, and I was like, to this day, I think that's maybe the, the one time Chevy Chase has made me laugh. Um, uh also that year sean connery won best supporting actor for the untouchables Mm -hmm. and what i feel like is not the performance we all remember from that movie oh i don't know i think it's a pretty great performance i mean de niro too but um no i mean i feel like that uh i feel like uh yeah i don't know i just when i think about that movie like it's always de niro that i remember yeah, and I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, Sean Connery was good in that movie. He sure it's was. The, the knife to a gunfight, you know. It's it's yeah. it's that it, it's uh it's that it's that line. I remember his again going back to the Oscars. Um, his entrance at that Oscar ceremony. Uh, not for winning, not not when he won, but they did a thing. They did a tribute to special effects, and I believe it was to give out the special effects Oscar. But like they did this kind of tribute to special effects, and then suddenly there's like this all this smoke uh, on the stage and like lasers, and then suddenly out of it emerges Sean Connery, and then like the bomb right. theme plays, and the, the audience just went fucking bananas. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember that. I, that was actually, you know what, for an, for an Oscar year that was supposedly famously bad, it was actually a very memorable Oscars. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do uh, how do you feel about the Untouchables itself? I love the Untouchables. Um, yeah. I love the Untouchables. I, I actually went and saw it opening night with my dad. I remember, um, he was not crazy about it, but I thought it was. I thought it was phenomenal. I loved how just insanely violent it was. We forget yeah. how fucking violent that movie oh, is. Yeah. People's oh, yeah. heads being blown off and stuff. Yeah. Um, I was the, I did, the blood the blood seeping on the table after the baseball bat is just like the, the, chills my bones still. But yeah, talk about a movie for a fourteen year old cinephile! Like holy shit! Yeah, the thing the thing I remember is, and the thing that really jumped out at me was when uh, when they're doing that thing uh, when they've uh, done the raid uh, with the with the, the, the with them on right. horseback, and they've done the raid of the bootleggers of the smugglers, and they're trying to get the one guy to talk. Oh God, and, yes, and, and Connery goes you know goes into psycho mode and he takes that the corpse of the other guy who the other guy can't see that this guy is dead so he just you know against the window like you know starts screaming at this corpse as if it's still alive and he takes his gun and like blows its brains out because the guy's dead already and then the other guy sees it and he's like he starts to talk but but they show the brains just being just yeah blowing all over the glass um which i'm like is it okay? Are we allowed to do that in the movie because the guy's already dead? Because that's a really <laughs> grisly fucking thing to show in a film, <laughs> R-rated or no. Swear yeah. to God, I think it's like because he's already dead, you can show his brains being blown all over the place. You know, it's like cooking at that point. If that character was alive, I don't think they would have been able to get away with that scene. 
Uh, Hope and Glory won the Golden Globe for Best Picture in a Musical or Comedy. That was one that you enjoyed as well, right, Belga? Yeah, I love Hope and Glory. Um, I was I was a big, I mean, I was uh, I'm like I was a big John Borman fan. I was 14, but <laughs> I had seen I had seen several John Borman. I'd seen um, The Emerald Forest, and I'd seen Zardoz. Actually, those were movies that I was like really into. Um, and and so Hope and Glory was uh, was yeah that was a, that was a film I really loved. If I had, I think at that I think that was the first year that I probably made a top ten list for myself. Um, <laughs> I don't remember everything that was on it, but I, I number one would have been Last Emperor, and I think Hope and Glory would probably have been number two. Um, so that was like back then that was like one of my favorite films. Over the years, I saw more Borman films, and the, the the reason I don't put it on there is just because I've. I've seen so many Borman films that I like even more than Hope and Glory, but Hope and Glory is fantastic. And one of, you know, one of his most personal films, you know, it's just great. There's a film that kind of deserves to be rediscovered. Yeah. I like, agree. Where's the criterion for that? Also released <laughs> by the same company, you know, I think Hemdale, Columbia, they were like busy. I, yeah, that was another David Putnam, like David Putnam, in like the what the 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 two years one year whatever right. I mean he he was he was ahead of Columbia for such a short time it might have been a few years, um, and acquired some amazing films and then got the fuck out of there and then the, yeah. the next the next um the, the next, next time uh, was Don Steele I think Don Steele and I believe I could be wrong I could be wrong about this but I think that is the last time Columbia Pictures won a best picture Oscar was that year. There you go. Uh, cuz cuz since then cuz I mean Sony they've been Sony since but um but they they keep they keep having a contender and then not winning you know um and uh and I think that was the last time they won. All right Mike you want to run us down the uh the box office top 10 and then we'll uh we'll see what else we got here. Yes, the box office top 10 sounds nothing like this podcast so far. <laughs> uh, number one is uh, Three Men and a Baby with $167 million. Wow. Uh, that could not exist and we would all be fine. Uh, number two is Fatal Attraction with $156 million. We, th- we forget how, how much money that, uh, how lucrative those erotic thrillers were for a while there. Everybody went to see Fatal Attraction. Oh, that yeah. The cause oh, yeah. celebre. Yeah. Uh, number three was Beverly Hills Cop 2 with $153 million. Um, we need to, <laughs> we keep, I keep going back on back and forth episode over episode for whether I read these 1 to 10 or 10 to 1. I think 10 to 1 is better. We need to oh, establish okay. a thing. Here we go, people. <laughs> Podcast meetings live. Uh, number four was Good Morning Vietnam with $123 million. That was that, my favorite movie of 1987, if memory serves. I am a couple of years younger, and it was a very big deal that I got to see that R-rated movie. Uh, but I loved Robin Williams, and I loved Good Morning Vietnam very much. It's a good movie. I I, I liked it. I mean, it was, it was one of those films that I'm like, absolutely fine. Yep. You know, t- totally enjoyed it. Robin Williams, he's great. Um, I remember at the time I was like, I'm not sure if this movie has a story, um, <laughs> but he's great. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And my introduction to, to the great JT Walsh, I believe right. that would be the first oh, thing yeah. I ever saw him being a complete dickhead. And Mike, oh, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> uh, number five was Moonstruck with $80 million. Number six was The Untouchables with $76 million. So, 
you know, some of the some of the one some yeah. of them got statues and bank accounts. Yeah. Uh, number seven was the secret of my success with sixty-six <laughs> million dollars. What a lovely little memory that was. I don't yeah. feel like it holds up. No, it doesn't. I revisited it for the New York book, and it it does not. <laughs> and yet, and yet, I would kill to have a movie like that, like yes. right now. Oh yes, you know, definitely. I... <laughs> definitely. Number eight was Stakeout with sixty five million dollars. Oh. Remember Stakeout? I love. I have. I have a Blu Ray of Stakeout. I just bought, like sitting right there. Congratulations! I, love Stakeout. Uh, Congratulations. I haven't watched it. I don't know that I've watched it since it came out, but it's sitting there, right. ready for me to watch. Um, <laughs> Come on, Dreyfus, yeah. Estevez, Madeline yeah. Stowe. Come on, yes. I don't remember anything about the the. I remember the premise. I don't remember the plot. Yeah, I don't remember the story. Yes. But <laughs> number nine, Lethal Weapon with sixty-five yeah. million dollars. Yeah. I feel like that, that was movie the earned every dollar. This was the shock for me when I was looking up this top ten for this year. Was that of the buddy cop movies, Stakeout just narrowly outgrossed. Lethal Weapon, and yet uh, only only produced one sequel, which was not nearly as successful as opposed yeah. to the giant Lethal Weapon franchise. <laughs> I think I think with both stake, I remember when Stakeout was like, you know, having its hold on the box office because I think it was number one for a while. Like it was a real mm. phenomenon. Like there were articles yeah. written about it at the time. I, I just y- y- you look at these films. I mean, first of all, except for Beverly Hills Cop Two, I would. Happily watch any of those movies again. Uh, would love to have movies like those in theaters again. Even the ones I don't particularly like. Cop Two, Beverly Hills Cop Two, I hate. Um, but like, talk about the importance of female viewers. Um, right. They were so instrumental in the success of so many of these films, including Lethal Weapon. Like, I know people don't mm. think about that. Like, people think of Lethal Weapon today as like. Right. guy movie action blah 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 mel gibson he's a bad person so you know this must have been entirely bad people seeing it or whatever you know like we, we tend to simplify these things the thing i remember i knew so many people who went to see lethal weapon because they had heard that you get to see mel gibson's ass in that that's movie. right you too uh, <laughs> um and think i'm 14 like like at the time i'm like 14 years old so i remember this from that period like there were there were there were women i knew who went to see lethal weapon because they'd heard you get to see uh some mel gibson rear and now remember back then it was obligatory mel took his shirt off in every movie right right Um, i remember i remember uh I remember a joke on, I think it was like the facts of life. One of those, one of those sitcoms. I remember uh, somebody, some like one of the girls comes back from the movies and, and they'd seen the Mel Gibson movie and they couldn't remember which one. And they're just in a daze. They're like, Oh, it was Mel, you know, and I don't remember the title and somebody else. I think, I, I, I think this was Facts of Life because I think Joe, the kind of smart ass, asked this question. Yes. She was like, when Mel took his shirt off, how did he look? And the other girl goes, wet. And, and she goes, you saw the river. <laughs> uh, uh, I remember that joke. I, I mean, I have, I, that was not a show I watched like in reruns. That was a show I watched when it came out. And I still yeah. remember that joke. Um, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, like all these, you know, Eventually, we sort of abandoned the, 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 you know, the theatrical experience to teenage boys. Uh, yeah. Like, like we think of these as movies now as like adult. They, they weren't necessarily adult. Like, you know, they were, I mean, Stakeout is totally juvenile. But um, right. 
but like compared to what's out now, that's yeah, you know, that was well, like no. movies for real grownups. And I was very surprised by the number ten, Mike. What was the number ten for the year? Witches of Eastwick. That movie was very important to my mother when it came out. George Miller like. Power. That's right. <laughs> Sixty-three million for Witches of Eastwick. Yeah. And now you know he just put out a, a new movie that nobody went to see. Yeah. Um, I, I saw okay. It. And as did I. <laughs> All right, uh, Bilga, you want to do a lightning round? What's the lightning round? What do we do in the lightning round? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put five minutes on the clock. We're going to make up a little bit of time here. We're going to put five minutes on the clock. I'm going to rat-tat-tat you down a list of 1987 releases. And I, let's just do it like this. Give me a, a letter grade or a pass if you didn't see it. Well, you want to do it that way? I'll do a letter grade or, or, or a pass if I don't remember it. But yeah, sure. Let's here. go. Let's do it. Here we go. All right. Lightning round. From director John Sayles, Maitwan. A plus was, 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 I mean, it was on the list of like potential titles for this one. Loved yes. it. Saw it in theaters. Was very pleased with myself. Uh, Great movie. West, West End Cinema, Washington, D.C. Uh, I remember <laughs> where I saw it. Great movie. Great movie. John Huston's swan song, The Dead. Today would be an A plus. Back then I was more like, oh, this is like a B plus. This is a bunch of people doing things I don't quite understand. And, you know, and then like over the years, you go back, it's the dead. It's fucking incredible. <laughs> um, but back then I was like, yeah, I don't. And like all the stuff with regret at the end. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't get it. I'm 14. You know, come back to me uh, when I'm 49. And then like I watched it again like a few months ago. I was like, oh, yeah, this is absolutely totally fucking devastating. <laughs> <laughs> Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun. Another one that w- that was almost on the list. I love that. I, I saw that in theaters five times. Um, hey, wow. That also played at a big, uh, in 70 millimeter, at a big uh, DC theater. Not as big as the Uptown, but it played at what was then the KB Cinema. Isn't around anymore. Another great old cinema house. The huge screen. I would go there. That was like, I would... I would alternate between like Last Emperor and Empire of the Sun. Empire of the Sun wasn't in that theater as long, so eventually it was just Last Emperor. But also part parts of it shot in China. Beautiful, Jean Luc Godard's King Lear. Uh, I'm uh, sorry, I'm just being such an asshole. Get A plus. Uh, it's <laughs> one of my one of my favorite Godards. Um, and I think that was another one I think we discussed possibly talking about. Um, and that's a hated, much hated Godard. Um, but I remember. The, I remember like the big news around like when he and Minam Golan yep. like, signed the napkin, blah, blah, blah. Yep. I didn't see it in 1987. I saw it years later because I don't think it actually had a d- release in D.C. Or it might have had like a week long release or something. Right. Like that. I, I saw it years later. And even today, it's kind of hard to see. But I've seen it many, many times over the years. I actually think I agree with Richard Brody, although, you know, I mean, he thinks it's the greatest movie ever made. I, I, think, <laughs> it's, I think it's merely one of the better John Luke Godard movies, but I love it. There we go. James L. Brooks's uh, broadcast news. Uh, you know, A minus for me. I, I really like it. Back then, I was not a big fan. I actually kind of thought it was a little boring. And again, mm-hmm. grown-ups, romantic comedy, romance, what? You know, like, I'm not going <laughs> to get that. Um, but I enjoyed it at the time. I enjoyed Albert Brooks. I think that was my first introduction to Albert Brooks. Um, Mine too. And, uh, and, you know, William Hurt was such a acquired taste. Like, William Hurt was not somebody I would have gravitated to back then. Like, I saw all the movies that he was in, but, you know, he was like William Hurt. He was somebody my parents liked. And over years, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I wish we had more William Hurt movies. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's uh, 
that movie has has also that movie was another one of those like best picture nominees that has since kind of you know gained an acclaim even though back then it was plenty acclaimed i will say my mom was a was a broadcast journalist and she was really into that movie because she thought it was so accurate to to her world she was a radio person but like the way they were scrambling over like getting things up on air and stuff right. like that and scrambling over Ted, like the running through the corridors. Like she was, she was on the floor. We, that's <laughs> another movie we went and saw it together. She was on the floor. Those scenes. She thought it was just so perfect. Kira Stami's where is my friend's house? You're just listing the other movies I made <laughs> that, that I gave you as potential. So, I mean, where's the friend's house is great. I didn't see it until many, many years later. I don't, mm. I don't even know if it opened in the U S uh, back then, but you know, it's kind of the the early years of I don't know if it's the early years of the Iranian new wave. I mean, I guess it's a few years in, but um, but yeah, the beginning of the Coker trilogy, uh, great film. John Hughes, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I am not the biggest fan of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, uh, which is a weird thing to have to say to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's fine. I, I enjoy it, but I was I've never been a big Steve Martin fan. Mm. Um, and John Candy, I, I enjoyed, but I was not, that was like, not my style of humor and it still kind of isn't, um, gotcha. I can, watch. I mean, I've seen it several times over the, in fact, I have like the 4k here. Um, cause my, I mean, I have lots of 4ks of movies I'm not crazy about, but, but, but my son loves that kind of stuff. So, so, you know, we have it here. I, I, I enjoy watching it every now and then, but you know, it's like a three star movie for me. Sam Raimi's evil dead Two. Another movie I had no idea about at the time, uh, have since caught up with uh, many times. Love it. Um, is it? I don't know. If it's, it's not my favorite Raimi, I don't think. But but it's you know it's it's kind of the when I first saw it, I think I first saw it in college, and I was not. I'm not a big. I was not a big fan of horror comedy at the time. The, the combination mm-hmm. of horror and comedy, like straight faced horror and straight faced comedy, um, and I was not. Like, I just didn't know what to do with it. I was like, all right, this is interesting. Like, I like the sort of handmade quality of it, but it didn't like, right. make that big an impression on me. And then over the years, I've come back to it. I'm like, oh, no, no, this is great. And I watched it again earlier. I think it was early this year or late last year. Um, Alamo or Nighthawk yep. or somebody showed it. And I was just like, oh, this is great. Yeah, whenever, <laughs> whenever this show's on screen, please call me somebody (laughs) all right and to close out our lightning round i'd be remiss if i did not bring up the uh the cause celebre of uh 1987 elaine may's ishtar you know i liked ishtar back then too i did see i didn't see it in theaters i saw it on video like the year later and you'd heard about all the stories about how it was a disaster i mean obviously now we recognize as being like bad they were unfair to elaine may blah, blah blah but like back then i remember my dad and I rented it. Oh, this is supposed to be terrible. Let's check it out. And we saw him. We're like, this is really funny and fun and, and cool. It's long. It's a little long. Like I, you know, I, I all felt, felt bad. And of course, back then after becoming a big Bertolucci fan, I was like, Oh, Storaro shot this. I've got to check it out. You know? Ah. Um, and of course it's like, look, you know, if you get Storaro, you're going to go over budget, like on your comedy, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I mean, it's like Bertolucci knows what to do with him, but it's like, you yeah. know, I mean, Warren Beatty and 
Coppola and all these people who hired Storaro and then were like, oh, look, we have a runaway production that's got like way over budget on because our cinematographer like spends all day lighting one shot, you know, um, it looks amazing. Uh, yeah. But so, so yeah, no. Um, so I saw, Ishtar, I mean, I wouldn't, it's not a four star movie for me or a plus or whatever, like, but I like Ishtar a lot and I do regret not having, not ever having seen it on a big screen. Like after I saw it on video, I was just like, oh, I should have seen this in theaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, there's our lightning round. Thank you for playing, Bilga. And uh, and that is our discussion of 87. I got to tell you, you know, when, when you first told me this, I was like, okay, sure, yeah. Uh, and when I went to look up everything that came out that year, it's like there was actually a real embarrassment of riches. But I think very much the thing that you're talking about, just in terms of, and it's very easy for those of us who grew up in the 80s to wax rhapsodic about this. Yeah comparative to now but like when you look at what was coming out on a weekly basis at the 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 wide variety the scope of things that were available just real solid programmers and genre movies and just you know the that there was so much that was just good just a lot of really good shit came out that year and a lot of the kind of thing that you just can't imagine a studio bothering to release now yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think what's happening in 86, 87 is, you know, it's the sort of the, the beginnings of like the American indie movement of the late 80s and, and 90s. I mean, you right. know, uh, I mean, Spike Lee has made his first films by this point. Um, John Sales obviously is, you know, like the, we're seeing like Jarmusch has kind of done, has started. So we, we're seeing like the beginnings of that. We're seeing the fruits of that. We're seeing, I think, some of the influences of that. Um, right. I think this is also, you know, we talk about, you know, Robin Wood had this whole thing, like the Reaganite entertainment of the 1980s. Um, this is kind of the come down from that. I mean, it's still right. happening. It's not like it's gone, but I feel right. like, like the, the, the mid eighties, 84, 83, 85, 86, even like is kind of the, 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 the drunken high point of just like maximalist macho. Yep redemptive America fights back kind of entertainment, whether it's, you know, the Chuck Norris, Sylvester Stallone bullshit, or um, even sort of like, you know, even something like Uncommon Valor, like, like films that are sort of a little more thoughtful and interesting, but also just, you know, when you really drop down totally psychotic. Um, Yeah. And now suddenly, I think that came to its apex in 86 with Top Gun. Like that was sort of like the, 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 as, as flag waving as we were going to get in a major motion picture. Exactly. And I, and I think that like, this is kind of the come down. And I think like there's, there's this sort of beginnings of people, and I think, uh, to be fair, I think people like Oliver Stone actually played a part in this. I mean, sure. I, years ago, I wrote a piece for Vulture. This was in like the mid to late 2000s before 2010 or whatever. Um, but it was about the um, it was about how like we needed better conservative movies because there were like, <laughs> there were, there were, like no good conservative films at the right. time. Um, right. And so as a result, left wing movies kind of sucked. Like left wing right. movies were, were sort of very rote politically and just had no, I mean, it was actually, this was around the time like W came out or maybe like a right. couple of years after W came out. And I was just like, what fucking happened to Oliver Stone? This feels like it was just written, like somebody just looked at a bunch of Huff, Huffington Post headlines and, you know, concocted <laughs> a script out of it. And I feel like there was this, not that the right wing cinema of the eighties was like all that sophisticated. I mean, yeah. you know, Invasion USA isn't exactly, <laughs> you know, 
Lenny right. Riefenstahl, you know, but, but like, but like what, I think what was happening was there was so much of it that, that like there was kind of a, a, a bit of a pushback, like everything happens in, in pendulum swings. And I think those of us who were alive for this time can, can differentiate between like, to us, it's never the eighties. Like we might talk mm-hmm. about it that way, but like 87 to me is so distinct from 85 or right. 86 or 84 or 88 or 89. Like each of those years has a very specific kind of sort of tenor for me cinematically. Um, and, uh, and I think 87 is, is, you know, not when I look back on it, it's kind of a really important sort of pivot point. And then, you know, the, the sort of the real sort of the, the burgeoning indie movements of the nineties is, is right around the corner. Although that's a, that's, that is in itself a different movement, you know? Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Bilga, I, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts on on this uh, this really interesting year with us. Um, if people want to uh, read your stuff or or follow you uh, on your social media of choice, where will they find you? Um, Vulture uh, com is where you will find most of my writing. Um, Twitter, I'm at Bilga Ibiri. Uh, don't follow me on Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to get off it. Um, but Good luck you know with that's that. that's where I, yeah that's never gonna happen. But th- that's where I am. Um, uh, yeah. So um, but yeah, that's that's where to find me. All right. Well, thank thank you again so much for coming on and, and talking thank with you. us tonight. Uh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year.